in community. It's, it's just so affirming, so energizing that the Lord continues to bring new people. I see some fresh faces today. Um, um, new people, I hope I get a chance to meet you. Betty Cannon, I've met you, but this is your first time with us, I believe. There's some other young faces I just got a chance to meet. Um, the, the Lord continues to bring people into Oikos Church, and our, our goal is to help you step into deeper discipleship to Jesus for the sake of your transformation and the transformation of our city. Um, the Lord is doing that. But part of what that means is when we introduce new people, it means our groups continue to grow. And we've been praying, Lord, would you help us to multiply our groups by the end of the year? And the Lord has answered that prayer. Um, we need to add at least one more group right now. And so we're getting to do that. I'm excited to see one of our kind of East groups is multiplying into two groups. And it may seem like a small thing, but group life is difficult. Um, church life post-pandemic is, is still kind of fraught for a lot of people. And to see growth it, in terms of attendance and numbers, to see it in terms of community and group life uh, is a reason to praise God. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But that also means that you can expect uh, that there's going to be some new faces show up in your group maybe this week or in, over the next month. Um, here's what I'm asking. If, if you're a part of a group and you see somebody new, can you, instead of acting like the newcomer, and you may be thinking, well, I've only been here a couple of months. You need to remember that all of us have only been here a couple of months. If you've been here a couple of months, you are now the host, not the guest. <laughs> so can you help us kind of welcome these people into life together? Um, our, our groups are going to need you to be a hospitable, welcoming face to the new people stepping in. All right. Um, here's something else coming up. This is kind of one of the most unusual things that I've, I've seen a church do. And so I want to talk about it every chance I get. Um, and it's the practice of in-home worship. In-home worship. You may be like, what does that mean? It means exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> we go into a home and we worship. And we worship within our Oikos groups. On the first Sunday of every month, we have a group that meets here, but normally we're making pancakes, we're circled up around a table, and it's a much smaller group to welcome any new, new people that week. But then all our other groups are going to be in homes, worshiping around tables with their families and sharing the bread and the cup together. And you may be thinking, why do we do this? There's a couple of really kind of crucial reasons that are they're, they're not the heart of our mission, but they're really core to our strategy. What Oikos means is home or family. And so in order to step in really even to our namesake, it means stepping into our homes and into our families to, to start living life as a family around a table. So it's practice. And every week that we do, every month that we do it, we get a little stronger at a couple of things. Community becomes stronger. The, the bread in the cup becomes not just something that's done quickly. It can be something that's dwelled on and shared. And it becomes more meaningful because it's now connected with experiences with our families and with our friends. But there's a couple other wins that I see here also. Because very often in churches, church can feel like a place that you go to in order to have somebody like perform, whether it's Candy and Michael or me presenting something to you, and it feels like something that, like, the ministers will take care of that. That's a staff thing. That is just simply not what the church is. The church is God's oikos, where, where God lives in us, and the, the church is all of us together. 
And so this is like a, it's a reinforcement and a declaration that we are all the church wherever we are meeting. And so in-home worship is a way of being the church together and experiencing the church as family. Next week, we have the opportunity to do that. In-home worship, the first Sunday of the month, you'll share a meal, you'll share the table, you'll share community together. And if you're thinking, well, I really want to be a part of that, but I'm not in a group right now, we invite you to the group that's going to be here, and you'll, you'll very much get a taste of what that will be like. We won't be over here. We'll be in the coffee house area. We'll be around a table, and we'll share a meal and the table. Okay? Next week, in-home worship. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some other things that are, that are happening in our lives. And so I just kind of want to take a minute before we enter into the text, just to kind of pause, breathe, pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Okay? I'm going to give you about 10 seconds to kind of just breathe in, breathe out to give me a chance to breathe in and breathe out, and then we'll pray together. Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, we praise your name. You are the one who sits on the throne, and yet we are here weak and sinful people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we can only sit here and stand here in awe of you for your mercy, for your love, for your patience, which is our salvation. Thank you for making a way for us to be reconciled with you. Thank you for making a way for us to be reconciled with one another. Thank you for making this multi-ethnic, multi-generational family here at this place. Lord, would you continue to send people our way? Lord, would you grow our discipleship deeper and deeper into the ways of Jesus? Lord, would you guard our community from temptation and the evil one? Would you help us to bear fruit in this city for your kingdom and glory. Lord, as we enter into your, your word, we open up the text and we surrender to it. Lord, speak to our hearts. Fill us with your wisdom. Convict us of sin and move us to action. For your glory and kingdom, in Christ's name, amen. All right, would you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21? Revelation 21. This is actually the finale of a pretty long series that we've been working through on the mission of God. And if this is your first chance, I do want to review it, but it's going to be very quick. Uh, the best way to review this series is to go back to iTunes or YouTube or some of the other ways that we, we get these lessons out. This is part eight, new creation. At the, heart of this is, at the heart of this series is this claim that the story of God reveals the mission of God. In other words, as you work through what God is doing in, in the story of Scripture, it shows us the kind of people and the kind of lives that we're called into. The story of God reveals the mission of God. And we've talked about this now in seven ways. Today's the eighth. We talked about how the story of God reveals in, in creation that we are commissioned as his image bearers in creation. This, this kingdom of priests to rule in the, in the world. We talked about the curse, though, how the curse of sin and the fallout of sin fills the earth with a curse. The calling is about the calling of the, the family of Abraham, who's very broken and sinful. But the Lord entrusts broken, sinful people with this calling to bless all nations. Abraham's family doesn't do that very well. And they end up in, in bondage. They're liberated. And then God entrusts them with his covenant. It's called the law. And so the law of Israel informs them how to be a holy people for the sake of the world. 
Christ ends up fulfilling this entire story, and he ushers in, in word and deed. He demonstrates, he declares that the kingdom of God has come near. And then, at the, at the end of his life, he endures the curse so that we might experience the blessing of his Holy Spirit by faith. And then, last week, Reed showed that the church is this discipling community of people leaning into God's mission. Now, that's, that's, that's just a couple of words about each one. There's so much more about the story of God. But I'm so excited for today, part eight, new creation. New creation is a concept that's fairly new to, I, I think, a lot of people. Um, this language of new creation is something that you saw Hunter and Betsy kind of working on to try to capture what is the hope of the Christian life. Most of us would say something like heaven, but we're trying to recapture this language of new creation that's there in Scripture. Here's the thesis for today. We anticipate God's new creation. We anticipate God's new creation in worship and witness. We'll kind of walk through the text. We'll make a couple of observations about worship and witness, and then we'll be done. Okay, let's, let's just dive into the text, and there's going to be enough tension here that I don't have to bring any in. Our text begins, Revelation 21.1, John, this is the, the seer, the prophet, the last vision of a very odd book. Um, Revelation is actually a prophetic letter. It's a, it's a letter written to seven ancient churches, all within the same geographic area, about the size of the state of Tennessee. It's a letter written to seven churches in a small area that are struggling with different things. Some of the churches are struggling with persecution. There's at least one man, Antipas, who's been murdered, and he's been, become a martyr for his faith. There's violence coming against some Christians in this, this little area. But most of these Christians, they're not facing violence. They're facing pressure, pressure to conform to the culture around them. There's powerful political figures. There's powerful marketplaces that are saying, if you want to be part of what we're doing, all it takes is a little greediness, a little, a little buy-in, maybe a little worship of the emperor. So there's some that are, are trying to compromise. Some are just trying to be safe. And then the third group are people who've just grown complacent. What's interesting is that two of the seven churches, it seems like everything's good in these cities. Like they don't have any problems. He says, you, you trust in your riches, you say all is well, and what you don't realize, it's, it's actually those are the two churches that the Lord has nothing positive to say about them, because they simply trust in themselves. Now, you may be at any one of those three points as we're listening to the message of Revelation. What is the message of Revelation? Well, this is the final scene, but in order to see the final scene, I think it helps to see some of the other scenes. The first scene after the, the initial letters is one that may be familiar to you. It's the scene of the throne room of God, where they're, they're opening this scroll that has a message for God's people. And they say, this is the scroll. This is what's going to tell us about all the things that are going to come. Unfortunately, they look around and they say, no, who's worthy to open the scroll? And they discover that no one is worthy until the lion of the tribe of Judah enters into the throne room. But he enters as a slaughtered lamb. This is Revelation chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. The first scene is of the scroll that's sealed 
but they finally discover that the Lamb of God is worthy. He is worthy. And so he begins breaking the seals. He's going to reveal to us the message of this book. The seals then are broken one after the other. There's seven seals. And it's kind of like nesting dolls. The seventh seal has seven trumpets, one after the other. Again, like nesting dolls, then the seven trumpets have seven bowls. And then finally, the book ends with the tale of two cities. There's the city of Babylon and the city of New Jerusalem. One is called the great prostitute, and one is called the beautiful bride. There's the tale of two cities. So with all of that, we're, we're zooming in at the very end of the story of God, at the very end of the story of Revelation. And we are glimpsing this new city of the new creation that God is promising. Here's how he describes it. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You may be wondering, what is earth to do with this new creation? Most of us use the language of heaven, but that is not how John describes it. He calls it a new heaven and a new earth. Where did this language come from? Where's he drawing on these ideas to get new heaven and new earth? the, The first place that he draws from is the creation of the world itself in Genesis 1. This is, remember, the story of God reveals the mission of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth are, are meant to be overlapping, intersecting spheres of kind of our space and God's space, with Eden kind of as the, the in-between where you can, you can experience God in one moment and the garden in, in all in the same moment. So the language comes from creation, but it doesn't stop there. The language also comes from the calling of Abraham. Whenever the Lord calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm I'm going to make you be a blessing to all the nations. But do you remember what he says? He says, go to the land that I'm going to give you. The word land is the same word as the word earth. I'm going to give you the earth. Creation calling, it's also there in the covenant. It's not just that the Lord wants to give his people Canaan. It's not just that he wants to give them a city within what we see is that that calling of land keeps getting bigger and bigger as the scriptures unfold. So much so that the prophets, like Isaiah, Isaiah says, after exile, God's going to bring you back and God is going to give you a new heaven and a new earth. Do you see where he's getting the language? He's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah's riffing on Genesis. So it's, it's creation, it's calling, it's covenant, but it's also Christ. You remember when Christ is sharing the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the the church's language. When Paul talks about kind of the hope that has broken into this time and space, he calls it new creation. There's Christians in the first century, they're arguing about how can Jews get along with Gentiles? How can these ethnic groups live life together? He says, it doesn't matter if you're Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile. What matters is new creation. New creation is, is the reintroduction, the, the invasion of this world with the world to come. The age to come has, has broken into the present evil age. That's, that's the way that Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it the same way. In 2 Peter 3, he says, 
that the new heavens and the new earth are, are going to come. Do you see, th- like this is the way that the New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors describe our hope of new heaven and new earth. This is maybe a little um, bewildering because we almost simply use the word heaven to describe what we're talking about. And I'm not going to make a big deal. If you want to keep using the word heaven, I'm not going to fight you on it. Um, But I do think we can recapture some of the biblical language. And there's one of my favorite scholars. He's writing about new creation. His name's Richard Middleton. And he's saying, but there may be important reasons to, to why this matters. It's not just language games. He says the term heaven simply does not describe the Christian, like the long future hope. He says not only is heaven never used in scripture for the eternal destiny of the redeemed, but continued use of heaven to name the Christian hope may well divert our attention from the legitimate biblical expectation for the transformation of our earthly life so that it conforms to God's purposes. A transformation that has already begun in Christ and that the church is called to live out in the present world. All right, what, what did he just say? He's saying, when we talk about heaven, we lose kind of the earthiness of it. We lose the nowness of it. And it's not that now is the fullness, but it's that the future has broken into the now. And it's not that the earth is the fullness, it's that heaven and earth are being united. Again, this is the way that Paul talks about it. Colossians chapter 1, he says that God's plan for the fullness of time, this is actually Ephesians 1.10, God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite, unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is, that's the plan for the fullness of time, to bring together heaven and earth. Colossians 1.20 says the same thing. He says, he's reconciling all things, things in heaven and things on earth, he's reconciling and making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, N.T. Wright, of course, he's, if you know N.T. Wright, he's kind of famous for this. <laughs> he says, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. And he, he means that literally. And so, he, yes, after we die, we go into heaven and we await resurrection. And then resurrection is where we, in our bodies, come back to, to dwell in new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Here's how he puts it. He says, resurrection, we must never cease to remind ourselves did not mean going to heaven or escaping death or having a glorious, noble, post-mortem existence. But rather, this is what resurrection means, coming to bodily life again after bodily death. Here's a, a simpler way to say it. The tomb of Jesus is empty. His body walked out, and so will ours. And it will walk out into the new heaven and the new earth. That's the way that scripture describes it. Okay. Does this really matter? <laughs> Justin Martyr, one more reason why it might matter more than you think. Justin Martyr is a second century believer. Uh, his name's Justin. That's his given name. Martyr is his earned name. Uh, he was killed for defending the faith of Jesus Christ in the face of just severe persecution. But Justin, in one of his dialogues, is really concerned about some Christians basically falling into, like, Gnostic thought. He says, this is his dialogue with Trypho, who's a Jewish man. He says, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians 
He says, but they're godless, impious heretics, and they teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, atheistical, and foolish. Does it sound like Justin's a fan of these people? Mm-mm, mm-mm. He's pretty strong there in the second century. No wonder they killed him, right? Uh, he, he comes on strong, but he says this. If you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth, and he says they blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They say that there is no resurrection of the dead, that their souls when they die are taken to heaven. Do not imagine they are Christians. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, he's saying they don't believe in resurrection, which is a different thing than not using the language of resurrection and new creation. I, I see the difference. But I think it's worth recapturing the biblical language that's there to help us recapture some of the mission that's there. Brian Blunt is a commentator on the book of Revelation. And he says that John's future visions have a present ethical purpose. The point of showing the future is to change our lives now. So the future hope has to change our current mission. And we need the earth to do full justice to what we're called into in the future hope. All right. If I lost you or if you're upset with me, just take a breath. We're going to keep going through the text, okay? What happens to the first heaven, first earth? He says they passed away and there was no longer any sea. This is just one of those throwaway lines. If you're just reading through Revelation 21, it's like, oh, cool, no sea. I guess I can't, like, wakeboard there or surf. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I'm more of a mountain guy myself, you know. But the sea, biblically, it's, it's way more than just a bo- large body of water with some salt in it. In, in Scripture, the sea is like the realm of chaos. It's, it's these scary, deadly, like, demonic places. Whenever Jesus wants to get rid of demons, do you remember where he sends them? Go to the sea. The the sea is the realm of chaos. But in Revelation in particular, the sea, it's the domain of the character that's called the dragon. The dragon is like the satanic figure in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's called the unholy trinity. You know the holy trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, the Holy Trinity looks like the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, and then the seven spirits who represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There's a parody, though, of the Holy Trinity. And the parody is the dragon and the beasts. The dragon and the beast. The sea is the domain of the dragon. In Revelation 12, the dragon is cast down to the earth and to the sea. The, the beast that arises, he comes out of the sea. This, this is the, in the book of Revelation, this is like the realm of the unholy trinity. And so when we see that there's no longer any sea in new creation, it's not just that there won't be water. There's not going to be H2O or something like that. It's, these are symbols. This is a prophetic imagination where the symbols don't exactly one-to-one correspond. It's not a code that you're, you're breaking. It's a symbol that's pointing to something bigger than itself. And what it's pointing to is that there is no more threat 
from any evil source. That the sources of death and evil have been done away with. In the book of Revelation, the, the sea is where, in, in chapter 18, he, he takes the city of Babylon and he says, like a millstone, he throws it into the sea. He's done with it. He's done with the unjust, corrupt systems of, of human culture. He's, he's done with death. The, the dead in the sea, they give up their dead in Revelation chapter 18. So all of these themes, it's showing that the sea is no more. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is like recapture this simple little phrase that God is rescuing us from everything evil. And it's this invasion of goodness into it. There's no longer any of those threats. Now, if you're really into wakeboarding, I'm not promising you that it doesn't mean that, you know. But I am promising you that God is dealing with every bit of evil and the source at the root itself. I talk to a lot of people who kind of struggle with faith. Um, some of them are people I hear like prominent celebrities. Ricky Gervais has a stand-up routine where he's like, why doesn't God just deal with Satan? And the Christian answer is that he is. He has and he is. And one day, soon, in the language of Revelation 22, one day soon, there's going to be no more sea. We're not going to have to, the new world will not have the pains of evil any longer. Did you know I could talk so long about just <laughs> no longer any sea? Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem. I would love to go. My daughter Annie has already started asking if we can go to Jerusalem. And I was like, that's, not, that's too expensive. That's not going to happen right now. You're, you're so little. She's like, okay, well, Hawaii will do. I was like, <laughs> I feel like, no, what? She's like, or Rome. I'm like, where did your taste in traveling come from? I just wanted to go to grandma's house when I was her age. Jerusalem, it's, it's, an, it's so foreign to us, but in the biblical imagination, it is the place where heaven and earth are overlapping. If you want to meet God, you have to go to Jerusalem to do it. Now, that's not true anymore. We are the oikos, the, the house of God. His spirit is building us up he is in us. But that wasn't true in the people of Israel. If you wanted to experience God, you had to go to Jerusalem. But what happens after Jerusalem is destroyed? God's not accessible in the same way. And so the prophets, they start saying that one day after exile, God is going to come back and he's going to bring in a new Jerusalem, the holy city. Again, Brian Blunt here. He's, he's really interesting. Because he says this, this view of the big hope is not some tranquil, idyllic, one-on-one -on -one encounter in a sanctuary of eternal solitude, cloistered away from the hustling, bustling interaction with others. If you think of heaven as just this intimate experience of God, it is that, but it's not just that. The picture is urban. That's the, his word. It's urban. It's a city. It's, it's with all of God's people. Now, we're not going to go except through verse 5 today. But, uh, Chase, well done on that reading. That was such a long reading, and you, and you nailed some of those weird um, gemstones in it, too. We needed Jason, our jeweler, to come in and tell us what all those were. But we're not going to get into the, the rest of Revelation 21. But do you see that picture where the, the city of Jerusalem 
it says it's 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia? It's this massive cube. And again, it's a symbol, it's not a reality. What does it mean that there's this 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile realm that's coming down out of heaven? Well, there's this really important image in the Old Testament that I think is being pointed at here. This is what a lot of scholars are saying. They say that in the Old Testament, if you want to step into God's presence in the temple or God's presence in the tabernacle, you have to go into the most holy place. The most holy place is a perfect square. That, like this, this room, it's a cube. And so what John seems to be doing is saying that the new Jerusalem, it, it's not that you have to go into the city and then find the temple and then go into the temple and then find the holy place. He seems to be saying that the entire new world is the most holy place of the presence of God. So much so that later on in chapter 21, he says, there's not a temple in the new city because the whole city is the temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He's trying to say that the fullness of the presence of God, the intimacy that only a few have ever stepped into by the blood of lambs, only a few have ever stepped into it. He said that is going to pervade all of reality. Not only is he doing away with the unholy trinity, He's, he's getting away every form of evil and every taste of it that we've ever had. But then he's going to pervade and invade with every form of goodness. The Lord God Almighty will be there and the Lamb. And they will be the light for the people of God. So the, the, the new Jerusalem, it's coming, it's coming down out of heaven from God. Every time you see the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, it's coming down. What I think is happening here is it's an inverse of the story of Babel. Do you remember Babel? They let us make a name for ourselves. Let's go up. Let us go up. And they start building their city called Babylon. This city is not achieved by human effort. This city is experienced simply by grace. It, it's not something that we achieve. Our, our language today, and we'll touch on this in just a minute, it's that we anticipate God's new creation. We do not achieve it. <laughs> new creation comes down and we get to, it's like it, it engulfs us. It surrounds us. It indwells us. Already, it is coming down, but one day fully. It's coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, do y'all know this image of the bride of Christ? Who is the bride of Christ in Scripture? Well, it seems to consistently be the church. In Ephesians 5, he can talk about marriage, and he can say that the bride, the, the wife, is, is like the church. She's married. In, in the Old Testament prophets, they said the same thing, that it's the bride of the Messiah. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I betrothed you, the church, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The church is the bride. Revelation 21, verse 9, he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is the church. But notice this. Look, look at verse 10, if you have your Bible open. 
It says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. I, he says, I'm going to show you the bride. And then he carries me to the mountain. And then he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You see, the thing coming down is New Jerusalem in, in all of the fullness of the glory of God. But the thing coming down is also the people of God. It's the church. It's God's people fully wrapped up in God's presence. There, there's no, almost no differentiation between them. The bride is the city, which is the temple, which is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God's place and God's people and God's presence come smashing together in the new world in, in ways that are just, he's searching for symbols to point to the beauty of this reality. And the symbol that he points to is marriage. And he says, the wedding is coming. So get prepared. Prepared. Beautifully dressed. The word beautifully dressed in most translations is the word adorned. In Greek, it's the word cosmeo. Do you hear the word cosmetics there? It's like, get done up. <laughs> get ready. Get dressed. <laughs> There's a big day coming. You're going to meet the groom. He's, he, the marriage supper of the lamb, Revelation 19. He says, you're invited. <laughs> and you're part, not, not just guest list. You're part of this bride. But how do we get ready? It's not literally cosmetics. It's going to get us ready for the marriage supper of the lamb. In, in the first invitation that we see in Revelation 19 to the marriage supper of the Lamb, he says, I, I want you to put on the fine linen. Throughout Revelation, there's this imagery of you get a robe that's white. The martyrs, they're crying, how long, how long? And he says, here's your white robe. In the next chapter, the people of God, they're presented, and it says, these are the ones who have their robes dipped in the blood of the Lamb, and so they've been made pure. But then in Revelation 19, he says, this, these are the final, this is the dress, the wedding dress. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. So it seems like it's this, we are washed and justified. We are made, we are made right with God through the blood of the Lamb. And we receive this gift by grace. And then by God's grace, He is preparing us to go do justice in the city. But not so much in the city as it is in the new city, in, in, the, in the church, in the people. We'll come back to this, I hope. Verse 3. He says, John, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place this mask, that this is the word for tabernacle in the Old Testament. God's tabernacle, his tent. And he's not saying that he wants to go camping with me next time I go out to Natchez Trace. Reed, thank you for filling in last week while I was at Natchez Trace. You did awesome, wherever you are downstairs. God's not wanting to go tent camping. The tent, the tabernacle, the dwelling place is the presence of God in the temple. And he's saying the dwelling place, the tent of God, is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. Now, this mask, the word people there is plural. They will be his peoples. He's not, he's not only covenanting with the people of Israel. He's covenanting with all nations. All nations get invited in, or in the language of Revelation, 
all tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. All tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. They get invited in. All peoples are invited in. Black, white, Latino, Asian. What am I missing? African. All people. No one shouted out any other, so... Thank you, thank you, all of them. All peoples, Tennesseans, Texans, we are invited in to share in this covenant relationship with God. And it says that God himself will be with them and he will be their God. It's, it's, it's all the promises of Zechariah too. That one day in God's new world, he's gonna invite all nations to experience his presence forever. And then that groom, like the glorious Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, as they descend with, with the people, as the people, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning. Do you see the quotations? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 65. This is the hope after exile. Exile was just devastating for the people of Israel. They lost family, they lost friends, they lost their kingdom. Political leaders are just publicly executed. Women are, are, are raped and murdered. Their homes are burned. Their children are taken as slaves. And that scene in Isaiah 65 is where Isaiah says, he's going to come and he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And he is going to wipe away every tear. And it's not just that the Lord is going to be compassionate to our experience of, of pain. He was already that before. He is that now. It's that he will make them all right. In his wisdom and justice, the Lord will make it right. He will wipe it away, and he will do it again at the source. The source, he's done away with evil, and he's doing away with death, and resurrection life will flood into this new world. And God in his wisdom is going to make all things right and good. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then... Verse 5, our last verse for today. He who is seated on the throne said. Now you would miss this, but in the book of Revelation, this is the second time, only the second time that the one seated on the throne speaks. The one seated on the throne introduces the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 8. And then the one seated on the throne ends the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 5. When he speaks, we should listen. Blunt. Uh, I think for the last time, I'll quote him. He says, this fact alone, this uniqueness of the ones speaking, it separates this passage from the ones that surround it. God personally confirms what was said about the new creation in verses 1 through 4. He identifies that God himself is the executor of this promise. Just in case there might be any confusion God declares that God is the one who does all of this. God speaks, and God says, I am. Now, this is God's name, but this is also who God is. The God who is. He's the I am. And this is what he's doing. I am making everything new. Eugene Boring, he says, God does not make all new things. God makes all things new. He's taken the old 
and he's transforming already. The old remains somehow but redeemed, restored. At our table time, Hunter talked about the garden several times. Yes, the garden, but not going back. The garden moving forward. <laughs> it's redeemed. It's, it's even more glorious and good and, and great. So, in light of this act of God who is making all things new, what do we do? This is our thesis for today. We anticipate God's new creation in worship and witness. You see the word anticipate. Anticipate is not the word achieve. Now, I wish I could achieve new creation on earth. I wish I could do justice in Memphis. I wish I could be the holy husband and father that I'm called to be. But I cannot achieve that on my own. We cannot achieve that altogether. And to strive after those things is the parody that Babylon always was. We anticipate what God is doing. Which means a couple of things. It's this combination, anticipate means the combination of humility and hope. Humility says, I can't do it. Hope says, but God's going to. Humility says, it's, it's enduring, it's lingering. But hope says, God's going to finish it. Do You see the combination of humility and hope. That we are too small for the work that God has called us to, but God is sufficient for the task. Humility and hope, we anticipate it. We don't know fully what that world will look like, but we are trying every day in our, in our integrity, our, our personal lives, in our family, in our relational lives, and in our church and in our city, we are trying to anticipate what God's new world will be like, and we're trying to make it in Memphis as it is in heaven. We anticipate that God is going to finish it. We anticipate God's new creation. And we do it in two ways. In the book of Revelation, it's especially two ways, worship and witness. I've struggled in this series. You know, it's eight parts. It's pretty long. And we tried to tell the whole story of God in, in eight weeks. And we tried to also have missional reflections for what that means for what we're trying to do as a church. And sometimes it felt a little complicated, and I kind of, I went home thinking, ah, I tried to do too much. So at the end of the series, if you're wondering what is our mission, what can we do, there's just two simple things that I think you are very intuitive. It's worship and witness. Worship and witness. And I'm going to use the book of Revelation to kind of flesh these out. What I mean by worship is literally the act of praising God. In the book of Revelation, there are so many little pauses for praise. You remember that, the initial scene that I told you about in Revelation 4 through 7? Where we enter into the throne room and we get this scene. Remember that the elders, they're taking off their crowns and they're casting them before him. And, and sometimes we think that, yeah, one day when he returns, we're going to cast our crowns before him. But the message of Revelation is not that one day we will join in the worship of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb on the throne. The message of Revelation 4, 5, 6, and 7 is that already in the present, right now, the worship of God is happening. There are seven hymns in Revelation 4 through 7. No coincidence. John seems to love sevens. Seven hymns. Let me, let me just like, drop a few lines from some of these. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
who was and is and is to come. As the elders, they cast their crowns. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they were created and they have their being. The next hymn says, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. How about this one? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to our Lamb. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Can you just like, you can hear the songs in the background that we still sing today. And our songs today are fully an act of our mission. You may be thinking, what good does worship do in a world filled with evil and injustice? What good does worship do? The, the truth is, worship tells the truth, and the truth will set you free. Worship does something, because it declares the truth of this world, despite the parodies of Babylon all around us. Worship Worship is the declaration. One of my favorite bands, the Avert Brothers, they say, tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. Worship is the act of telling the truth to ourselves and to other people. It's reminding ourselves that the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are on the throne today. The central message of the book of Revelation, the central message is found in chapter 11, verse 15. It's finally the seven seals of the scroll are broken and they read it. And this, it says this, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Do you hear the hallelujah chorus? And he shall reign forever and ever. The, the act of worship declares that God is king today. We anticipate new creation by recognizing where he's already inaugurated the kingdom. He has done it through the blood, through the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Worship. Worship, it means showing up, yes. <laughs> it means singing out, yes. But not just here. This is the language of our hearts when we're in pain. Worship. Worship, but also, it's not just the act of praise. Worship is the act of allegiance. In the book of Revelation, the songs differentiate who you're with and who is your king, particularly at the end of Revelation with chapter 18 and 19. Chapter 18 is a funeral dirge that's sung about dead Babylon, the great prostitute. And at this funeral, the Lord has this invitation. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. The great day of justice is coming, and the dirge of a funeral does not have to be our last song. Because the song of the marriage supper of the Lamb says, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. The songs that we sing the cadence and rhythms of our lives reveal the Lord that we serve. The Lord of Babylon is alive and well in our city and in our country. 
but the people of God sing a different song. And our lives and our disciplines and our rhythms and our habits are characterized by a different rhythm of life. It's the rhythm of life of the slaughtered lamb who gave himself for our redemption. All right, is that enough on worship? Amen. Witness is the second half of how this new creation is informing and invading the present. And like worship, witnessing is merely telling the truth. The, the witness of the book of Revelation is the word martyreo. It's, it's literally the word martyr. But the saints in the book of Revelation who are martyred, they're described as conquerors. It's the word Nike. It's, Nike means victory in Greek. They are, they're victorious, they're victors, they're conquerors. Here's how they conquer, two weapons, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. What is the word of their testimony? Again, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. We share testimony that Jesus Christ is king. But then, it also informs our lives of justice and action. It's not just a testimony of words. The people of God in the book of Revelation, they resist the allure of Babylon, especially in regard to money, sex, and power. In Babylon, money is king. The economy dominates. But when the, day, when the new creation of God steps in, everything collapses from the merchant ships to the slave trade. And they all start mourning and weeping because the greedy and the self-satisfied are coming to an end. The, the warning of the book of Revelation says, you say that I am rich. I have wealth and I don't need a thing. Revelation 3.17. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Buy gold from me refined in the fire so that you can become rich. The, the witness has to inform how we give and how we spend our money. Money and sex. The prostitute, the great prostitute, the whore of Babylon is more than a, a metaphor for spiritual adultery. The book is filled with warnings against sexual immorality. The church at Thyatira in chapter 3 verse 20 was seduced to practice sexual immorality. The sexually immoral in chapter 21, verse 8, and, and 22, 15, they're outside the city looking in. They don't get to experience the goodness. The warning is that the witness of the church has to inform our sexual integrity, not only our financial integrity. Money, sex, and power. These are the big three in the book of Revelation. The power that is behind the political machine of the beast in the prophet Daniel, he says the beasts are like the kingdoms of the world. They're, they're the kings, they're the princes, they're the rulers, they're the politicians. He says, but the beasts are going down. <laughs> and so are all who would grab at power as the solution for the mission. The solution for the mission is not found at grasping power, but it's the self-giving life and love of the slaughtered lamb. And so the people of God, they pledge allegiance to the Lamb and they surrender power 
as the means to victory. Money, sex, and power, that is our witness. We are not like the ways of the world. May this church not be like the ways of the world, divided by political power, grasping for more, greedy, striving for contentment because of what we have earned for ourselves. Sex, where anything goes and whatever we want is validated. Where our secret lives are eroding our marriages. May it never be. And so, the the final hope is that the holy city, the bride, is going to be descending, coming down out of heaven, dressed in the righteous deeds of the saints. The witness of the church looks like justice in the book of Revelation, where we are given the justice of God through the blood of the Lamb, and then we are empowered to go do the righteousness, the justice of God in, in the city. But it's not done so much in the city of Babylon as it is done in the New Jerusalem. So I think ultimately the vision, the mission, the, the picture that we see of, of what God is doing in the world is for his people to form a counter community of worship and defiant witness, even unto death, if that's what it takes. The last battle is a C.S. Lewis book. It's the last one in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And at the end of this story, spoiler alert, um, you can, I guess, leave if you don't know how it ends. Uh, the Pevensey kids all die in a train wreck. And they're sad because they're meeting Aslan. And this isn't how they saw the story ending. But Aslan, he says this to them. He says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that we have all, they have all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover in the title page. And now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We anticipate God's new creation in worship and in witness. Lord, come quickly. Would you stand and I'll pray for you. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb who sits on the throne, we surrender ourselves to you. Would you use us for your mission? Would you strengthen our voices in suffering and pain, in evil and injustice and sin, so that we can declare with our words and with our lives that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Would you go grab your kids, please?